Well, good morning. This beautiful December morning, it's good to be with you. We are, as Brad mentioned, in the uh, third Sunday of Advent, uh, speaking and thinking about waiting, which is what Advent uh, in part is about. It helps us to understand and to embrace the waiting. I think for most of us, we don't mind waiting if uh, there is a purpose to it. If there's something at the end of waiting that actually uh, is valuable that we can grab onto and that's tangible, that we uh, don't mind it. But when we wait for no purpose, or if there's no purpose in it, or there's just frustration at the end, then it just kind of frustrates us. I remember years ago in Vancouver, I was meeting a group of friends downtown, and this was before the age of cell phones, which I know is hard for most of us to even think about. Some of us have never lived in that age of cell phones. And so you don't have that access uh, to people. And we were meeting at a certain place, downtown Vancouver, at a certain time. And I remember waiting for three hours, and they never showed up. And it was frustrating. When there's nothing at the end of it, when there's nothing, there's no purpose for it, you kind of go, okay, what's that about? And so even in a day like today where we have, uh, we're used to instantaneous things, we're used to having things happen quickly, we're used to things uh, immediate, we still wait for things. We wait for our Amazon orders to come in. We wait for things in lineups at stores. We wait for our coffee if we go in and stand in line, whatever the case may be. And so we have small little glimpses of waiting, but typically we're not good at it. Um, unless there's something at the end of it or in the midst of it that gives us more purpose. But how we wait matters. That's part of what Advent's about, to teach us how we wait, and also to remind us what's at the end of that waiting as well. Season of anticipation. As Brad mentioned, we're looking in th- at this coming of Christ in three periods. A few weeks ago, two weeks ago, we looked at in the flesh, the incarnation, this Christmas story of God himself coming in the form of a baby. Last week, uh, Spencer looking at daily in our hearts, and the coming of Christ daily, and then today, in glory at the end of time. We're going to look at a text in 1 John chapter 3, and I encourage you to turn there. This is our primary text that focuses us on this last aspect of of Christ's return. And how is it that we live waiting? So let me read just verse 2 and 3 of this text, where John says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. You know, in this letter that John is writing to the churches, he really has two primary agendas. One of the agendas is that he wants to expose false teaching to those who, ex- who distort the truth, and he wants to proclaim the truth and help them to see it for what it is. And secondly, he wants to encourage those and reassure those who are living faithful lives. And that's what he's doing here in this section is he's reassuring and encourage those who are living faithful lives. And it's this encouragement of how to live while you are waiting. You know, many passages in Scripture talk about Christ's return. Talk about this second coming. And in, if you look just a few verses earlier at the end of John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, there's this word of encouragement here again, as John is wanting to do to the people. And he says, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. When he appears, 
Continue in him so that you can be confident, unashamed, blameless. You know, the verb that is used here to, that is used in the word appear literally means reveal. And a number of weeks ago, you might remember uh, Pastor Kevin was talking about the apocalypse and that word and and sort of reclaiming that from a a message that that we heard a number, some of us who were at the study conference, we heard about this, uh, that was talked about the apocalypse and how it is a, a teaching that needs to be reclaimed about when, the, when Christ returns, it is not so much that Jesus went a long ways away, but that Jesus is actually right here. Jesus is just behind the curtain, and that the apocalypse, or this second coming, is more like pulling back the curtain, where God just kind of pulls back the curtain, and then Jesus is revealed. But that the truth is, is that Jesus is always close. Apparently, uh, as I've been listening to some young parents uh, that are close to us, and, and within our church, uh, there is this new trend that uh, parents have that's called reveal parties. Creative ways to kind of explain and, you know, kind of celebrate whether it's a boy or whether it's a girl. And so, you know, you gather some people together and you have these surprising things that that happen, you know, and some of the more normal things of, you know, you have a cupcake on the icing on the outside, you have it on the inside and you bite into it and it's either blue or pink and then it's a boy or it's a girl or whatever the case may be, you know. Or there's the other one that I saw, you know, where you have like a smoke bomb that goes off in a box and then it's like a blue color or pink color. Uh, my favorite one was, you know, where a, you know, a bride or a, a mother-to-be is, you know, has her husband stand at a distance, take a paintball gun and shoot him with it. And it's either blue or pink uh, paint. That's interesting. Um, Back in my day, we didn't have those things, you know. We just sort of waited until it appeared and then kind of looked. It's a boy. I never experienced that. It's a girl. It's another girl. It's another girl. That was great. You know, when you write down these analogies, you think they're going to be helpful. And as I'm reading this and thinking about this right now, I'm going, I don't know if this is helpful. Um, (laughs) Sort of like that, but not really. But the apocalypse, Jesus' second coming, is like an incredible reveal party of the living God coming to bring all things to completion. Of pulling back this curtain and you see Jesus, who is now coming for his people. What an amazing picture that we see in Scripture. Another word of encouragement that comes out of this text is a reminder of our identity. It's a claim of identity that has nothing to do with the work of the child, but only the work of the Father. We see that in chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 John, where it says, See what, the, what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. This is what we really are, children of God. It's an identity statement that we know the Father, that we identify with the Father, that he identifies with us, that there is a resemblance, that there is an image bearing, that we look like the Father. Again, I was thinking about this. I was thinking of people who uh, are in high kind of profile positions. You think of political leaders. You think of Justin Trudeau or someone like that and all the ID that is required to sort of get past people in order to see him. Uh, His children don't need to go through that. His 
Children can kind of walk right into the office, don't need ID, don't need proof. They enter in because it's self-evident who they are. There's an identity. They even look like him. So they can walk in. People around them see that identity. They know the relationship. They understand it. And maybe in a similar way, we are like that. We are identified with the Father. We are called to be image bearers of the Father. We should look like Him. We should look as God has called us to look as we imitate Jesus Christ and walk in His ways. And what this passage is talking about, what John is talking about in the church, is you already have that identity. You already look like Him. You are uh, like the Father. You are a follower of Jesus. We exhibit these features. We reflect the righteousness. But then at this big reveal, we become even more like him. We don't know exactly what that looks like. We don't know what that will be. We don't fully understand that, but we will look even more like him. It says in verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, that we will be, but what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Think of another passage in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, where it says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. There's that part of the mystery, but we will be like him. And more and more in his fullness when he comes again at the second coming. You know, inherent in this passage is this truth that um, when Jesus returns, we will share in his glory as well. There are numerous passages in Scripture that reflect this truth. But what's interesting about this connection of sharing his glory and being in the image of Christ and becoming more and even more like him is that it only goes in one direction. What I mean about this is that knowing God and his righteous character and being a child of God who trusts in him and has chosen to follow Jesus leads to this imitation and it's reflected in our lives. But it doesn't work the other way. Meaning that living a good and generous and righteous life of purity does not cause us to be called a child of God. Nor is it a condition or cause of rebirth. Because you see, living transformed lives is evidence of our salvation. But it does not save us. We are saved by the grace of God and the work of God himself. So how are we to live waiting? It's our question for today. If you're following along and reading in the Advent devotional book, you would have read Pastor Harry's entry today where... He talked about this and said, Keeping watch is more than keeping an eye on the heavens. At its very core is the sense of living with full engagement, recognizing that Christ could return at any moment. So waiting is living with full engagement. In other words, we wait appropriately. We wait in a certain way, but paying attention to how we live right now. I was in a setting in a meeting this week and, and was told this really unique thing that, that stood out for me. That, that the word, the Spanish word hope, which is esperanza, at, that, at the root of that Spanish word is this combination of waiting and advancing. These two thoughts of waiting and advancing that combine to make this word hope. And this is how we are called to wait. Waiting and advancing the kingdom of God. You know, every text, as you look in Scripture, that speaks of the end times, that speaks of Jesus' return, always speaks to how we are to live in the present. That we are not to live idle lives, just sort of waiting and looking at the horizon, 
but waiting and advancing God's kingdom. This morning, I want to look at three ways that we can do that. And first of all, as we see in this text, the first way is to live in purity. It's interesting, and that's what struck me about this text today, of how we are called to wait. It talks about this in this passage, to live in purity. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This call to not compromise your witness, your effectiveness of your discipleship with bad choices, bad patterns that put you on the sidelines. I couldn't help but think about what's so much in the news today, and we see it every day, that our broader culture is waking up to this reality of what it looks like to not live in this way. From Harvey Weinstein to Kevin Spacey to Matt Lauer and on and on and on it goes. Every day, more stories. People losing reputation, losing careers, losing empires due to sexual indiscretions of many sorts. A lack of living in purity. As I've been following and reflecting on this and thinking about the sexual sins and the lusts of our hearts, these are critical issues not only that topple media empires, but they cause all kinds of pain in the church as well. It causes so many people to shrink back with shame and condemnation and causes all kinds of hurt. And it drew me to, again, in 1 Corinthians 4, where it says this. It says, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I think about that as a leader in the church in this topic. And it says in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 4, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And the truth of this, it happens in our culture, it happens in our churches, that God will bring these things to light. You know, last week, Spencer talked about the fact that, that busyness is a major obstacle to our discipleship, a major hindrance to our discipleship, which is true. But I was recently in a group of male MB leaders, and we were talking about this. We were talking about the truth and the reality that pornography and sins of the flesh is likely the number one obstacle to discipleship for men. Not that it's not a challenge for women as well, too, but for men, this is probably the number one obstacle for discipleship in the church. Because of the shame and the condemnation that it leads to. So here in this text even, as it calls us to live differently, to live waiting and advancing, how do we do that? We're called to live pure lives so that when Jesus returns, we may be confident and unashamed, as it says in verse 28, chapter 2. And here's the thing. Satan loves to tell us lies around these things. First of all, Satan tells us up front that the the small things are kind of no big deal. They don't really matter. Just a small compromise doesn't really matter. And then you read the book of James and what James says. And he says, you know what? After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. And then on the other end of that story, Satan tells us, whether you're the victim or the offender, either one, he says that you're worthless, you're finished, everything's over, and there's no coming back from this. And you know what? Both of these are lies of the enemy. Both of them. On the front end, small things do matter. And on the other end, when it has led to death in one way or another, and darkness and hopelessness is there, you need to know that that is not the end of the story. There is hope. There is freedom. There is forgiveness. There is repentance and redemption when repentance and confession are part of it. If you look in 
chapter 1 of 1 John, just go back a little bit from our, our primary text today, and you see right in, in, the, in the middle of chapter 1 where it talks about this. It talks about light and darkness and this, this tension of sin that is there in our, our lives and this, this tension that we feel in this light and darkness. It says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So here's the power of the truth of this, is that... On the other end of this, when you feel the shame and the condemnation and the darkness and the brokenness, that's not the end of the story. Because as John says, this truth of the gospel, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, forgives us, purifies us. And we can live and walk in purity again. What an amazing truth of the gospel. So how do we wait for Christ's return? By purifying ourselves, living pure lives just as Jesus did. And in doing so, we don't compromise the witness of the church. So we glorify God and we advance the kingdom, waiting and advancing. Secondly, a second way that I would put forward is that we live fully present today. We've already talked about that, that truth that we don't just sort of live uh, looking on the horizon, sitting idle, kind of just waiting for his return, but we live fully present today. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, it talks about this as well. Another text that talks about the second coming of Christ. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Not just about watching the sky and gazing off into the horizon or selling everything and moving to a commune in Texas or even fixating our, on charts or timelines or trying to understand, okay, when is the timing? What, how is it going to end? When is it going to end? All those kinds of things. We're not to be consumed with those things. And even the things that Jesus pointed to, as you read at the end of Matthew where he talked about, these are the signs of the end times. I've heard many people talk about that today, and it's true. Like, yeah, there are some things that definitely line up with today, but they're kind of vague and general. And I think almost every generation has probably said, we, we seem to be living in the end times. And so we are called to live ready in these final days. You know, in Matthew 25 that we looked at a number of weeks ago in our Faithful Presence series, we looked at some of the parables that Jesus talked about of his return and how to live fully and faithfully present, including care for the marginalized. It's part of how we live fully immersed and fully present today, which is where our Faithful Presence initiative came from. As we talked about that throughout the fall and as we were, as a staff, praying and discerning, how do we engage our congregation more? And as Brad indicated, you can see that, more information on the app, on the website, information at the back. And we have different projects that we'll do collectively as Brad mentioned. But the main point is to pray and discuss and decide and discern, God, how are you calling us to live fully and faithfully present today? Not just during an Advent season, but in an ongoing way, all year round. How do you want to change our lives? How do we 
need to reorient our lives in some way. I heard of one couple who started praying for their tenant living in their basement suite, saying, how could we actually engage with this young single woman? And how God already has brought opportunities to engage in more meaningful ways that they couldn't have imagined, but just by starting to pray and ask questions and being open to that. One small group that I'm aware of there, they decided to support a courageous single mom who is fostering a number of kids beyond her own kids as a single mom. And they actually brought her into their small group and they heard her story and now they're just coming alongside her and saying, how can we support this woman as she follows God and we want to bless her and help her in this courageous act. I hear stories of many of our seniors and I know that they're engaged in living and serving and, and being involved at the bridge. And I hear stor- all kinds of stories of the, being involved in a regular basis. And even yesterday, Dolores, I saw her and she was bringing bags of these mitts that have been knit together that are going to be given to the bridge. Knits, uh, mitts, scarves, toques, all kinds of items to distribute. So we have people who are engaging in ongoing ways in relationship to live a faithful presence in whatever way. And the encouragement is that each one of us would do that, discern that, ask, Lord, how are you calling us to live, to live out this faithful presence initiative in a unique way? With our family just being back together now in this last couple of days, we have a family meeting plan, part of Wednesday night. I don't know if they know this yet. We're going to be talking about the faithful presence. How are we living this out as a family? As we discern together, but what does this look like for us? Thirdly, how do we live waiting? We need to live the story that you want to tell. You need to live the story you want to tell. We need to live with the end in mind. First of all, the story that we want to tell Jesus, because it says that we will be, when he comes again, that there will be an accounting. So what is the story that we want to tell him, even though he already knows the story? Will we stand before him confident and unashamed? But also the story that we want to tell our children, that you want to tell your extended family, that you want to have read at your funeral. What is, it the sto- what is the story that you want to tell and that you want to have told about you? I find it interesting, there's all kinds of ads on TV these days about Ancestry.ca and people have such a desire to find out their history and their family of origin and where they came from and to find out about some of the people that have shaped them and, and, and so on. Well, here's the interesting thing. You are the family of origin for your children and your grandchildren and all those who come after you. And even if you don't have children, you are the family of origin. You are part of that extended family. When decades from now, people will go on Ancestry.ca or something else and read about your story as one of the family members, as part of this family that have shaped the future generations. It's a powerful thought. We have to think about how is it that we want to tell the story? How do we want to live our story today? My oldest brother, Rob, right now is is meeting with my parents. My dad is 90 years old. And every Wednesday, they get together for coffee, and they, my dad just keeps telling my brother Rob the story. And he's starting to write it down. He's journaling my dad's story and chronicling this whole thing, which I'm so glad that he's doing. It's part of our family story. And you could say in one way that my brother Rob is writing the story of my dad's life. But not really. The story of my dad's life has been written for decades. He's just taking account of it now. He's just putting it on paper right now. But the content of my dad's story has been written for a long time. You are, li- you are writing 
your life story right now. If you're 18 years old, you're writing your life story right now. What's the story you want to tell? If you're 29 years old, you're, you're writing the life story right now that others are going to read. If you're 47 years old, you're writing your life story right now that others are going to read one day. What's the story you want to write? If you're 63 years old, you're writing your life story right now. The story that you want to have before God and stand before God with. If you're 79 years old, you're writing your life story right now. If you're in your 90s, you might have a really thick, like, Leo Tolstoy book of story already, but you're still writing your life story. If you still have breath, you are still writing your life story. So we have to live in anticipation of Christ's return. We have to live with the anticipation of our own mortal death, understanding that we are writing our life story right now. What's the story that you want to tell? What's the story that you want told? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Apostle Paul, he writes this, and these are just some excerpts from that chapter that I love. He says, your letters are, or sorry, your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ. This letter is not written with pen and ink. It is written on human hearts. Because you see, this letter is the impact of your lives. And Paul was onto something here that he understood so clearly that our lives are like a letter that are written about your life story that people will read, that people will interact with, that people will be impacted by. So for every one of us, we have to ask ourselves, what's the story that we want to have told? Because that's the story that we need to live. This is pure waiting. This is the kind of waiting that Jesus calls to. To live in purity. To live fully and faithfully present today. And to live the story that you want to tell. And may Jesus find us hopeful. Waiting and advancing his kingdom. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me as the worship team comes up? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths of these texts. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are right here. That you are not in some distant, far-off place that you have to return from a long way off, but that you are right behind the curtain. Lord, help us to live with that awareness, with that truth. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in purity. And Lord, for those that are here this morning that are struggling with this area in their life, for one reason or another, I pray that they would know that this is not the end of the story. That because of your gospel and the hope and the promise of who you are, and because of the cross, that you can purify anything again. That you can make us whole, that you can redeem, that you can restore what is broken, that you make new things out of old things, that you make whole things out of broken things, that you make pure things out of dirty things. God, you are an amazing God. We just claim that again this morning, that you would help us to live in purity in our waiting. 
And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live fully present today in the ways that you call us to live fully present in the lives of others. And as we do that, we are writing the story of our lives. Remind us of that as we wait for your return. Lord, I pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to live out the unique callings, the unique opportunities, and the unique obediences that you call us to. Lord, help us not to wait idly. But Lord, help us to be waiting and advancing, waiting and advancing. Would you give us the desire and the power to do what pleases you in this area? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.